By November, I saw the news that hydroxyurea is no longer available in my facility. Health inequalities are a major challenge, both within and between countries. But what happens when the latest therapies are inaccessible to the countries that need it most? Prisoner is about £16,500. Oxylotal costs about £8,000. On this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Norris Ibinweka, a UK-based hematologist who's currently undertaking a PhD in gene editing for red blood cell diseases at Imperial University in collaboration with the University of Oxford. I'm also joined by Dr. Mary Ansong, a medical doctor based in Ghana and founder of the International Sickle Cell Centre. I'm your host, Dr. Yemsi Bokini, and this is Sickle Cell Unboxed. Sickle Cell Unboxed is powered by the Genetic Society. So Mary and Norris, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Many thanks for joining us. Hi, Norris. Hi, Hi MEC. Thank you so much. Thank you. So Finding Medicine. Um, I decided to name this episode Finding Medicines because I remember reading a press release by um, the NHS. So last year, a new drug on the market, Crizan Luzumab, I think it had been available in the US a bit, you know, a bit sooner. But it was made available on the NHS in the UK. And I found an interesting statement in that press release. It would be made available to 5,000 people over the course of three years. I found it strange that it couldn't be made available to everyone, despite the evidence proving just how good it was at reducing pain crisis and admission to hospitals. But I suppose that just highlighted the fact that medicines cost money. And when we think about sickle cell, we know that the vast majority of the burden is on the continent in Nigeria, in Ghana. So if we're struggling on the NHS to give everyone the latest drug, when on earth would it reach um, the people who who are, um, who are have, you know, least access to it? So thanks for joining us on this. So hydroxyurea, let's start from the most commonly used one, the one that we've been using the longest, all the way down to newer treatments, and I'm sure, Norris, you're touching on that. Hydroxyurea is a drug that has been used for a long time um, for treatment for sickle cell, and it should be the cheapest. Mary, your doctor, you also have an NGO um, based on, um, you know, increasing access and awareness of sickle cell. Tell us your a bit about your understanding of, of the status of, of availability. Um, so um, hydroxyurea is one medication which has benefited many lives in different parts of the world. So I can still recall my excitement when um, the government announced last year that it's going to be on the health insurance, that's the National Health Insurance Scheme. And that was somewhere in June and everyone was excited about the news. But then I think I remember it being rolled out in the clinic, the hospital I was practicing in, in August. But then by November, I saw the news that hydroxyurea is no longer available in my facility. And I realized that it was available in certain facilities. And in other facilities, interestingly, it was never rolled out. Though it was the way government facilities, they never started the process of rolling out hydroxyurea. And hydroxyurea has impacted many lives in Ghana. I've had patients who have told me how it's reduced the pain crisis, how their lives has been made better with the medication. I've also had people tell me, you know, hydroxyurea in Ghana, Novartis was providing it for free for two years. 
But and after that, the government um, was supposed to take over the supply of the supply of hydroxyurea on the NHIS. So that's when the government stepped in last year and we were all excited. But um, unfortunately, this has not continued. And everyone is aware of um, the economic status in Ghana. It was all over in the news how the city was like. It was it was very bad. And so that, I'll say, was the biggest factor that affected the supply of hydroxyurea and even other medications on the National Health Insurance Scheme because a lot of facilities saw no need of... It's not that they saw no need, but they just couldn't supply hydroxyurea because the cost of hydroxyurea from the producers or the suppliers was way higher than the cuts that the government was willing to pay for it. So if the cost is higher than what the government is willing to pay for, then it means that they can't they can't supply to the patients no matter how um, urgent. And you know, uh, you, the National Health Insurance Programme in Ghana is to be commended. I mean, I've, I remember doing internships there and seeing people get eye surgery on the on the national insurance and not pay a penny, like essentially go to a clinic, get a cataract removed and not pay a penny. So it shows that, you know, the, the goal was there, but obviously in the context of economic challenges, it's it's yeah. no longer feasible. Are you aware of perhaps maybe why uh, Novartis put an end to the programme? How much does, you know, a month's supply of, of hydroxyurea even cost? Um, I think it depends on the healthcare facility. Um, for um, Ridge Hospital, that's a great Accra Regional Hospital, I know it's going for, I think, about two cities, 50 pesos. At other places, it's going for averagely three cities Is that per, per capsule. Month? So if, depending on the person's weight, it's given per weight. So depending on the person's weight, then you calculate the amount of um, capsules that are needed. So if the patient needs two capsules per day, that's um, 14 tablets. And so when you multiply it, you realize that patients need averagely about almost 150 Ghana cities per month. But then this is based on their weight. And some would have mm. to take more, maybe three capsules. Some would take two capsules on certain days and one capsule per day. And some too buy it for as high as five CDs per capsule. But then generally the response has been good. It's improved patients' lives and reduced the frequency of crisis. Some say they feel stronger and better, raised blood levels and the rest. Okay, so Norris, you and I, were both based in the UK. We know that in the NHS, hydroxyurea isn't an issue. It isn't considered mm. an expensive drug. It's readily available for those who um, qualify for it in terms of yeah. um, their need uh, for treatment. But we do have an issue when it comes to Crizanluzumab. Recently released, made accessible on the NHS, but it's being rationed. It's being rationed to 5,000 people over the course of three years. Tell us a bit about why that's the case, considering it's been proven to reduce hospital admissions and reduce episodes of painful sickle crises? Yeah, so I think um, in the UK, crizolizumab is on a what we call a managed access agreement at the moment with NICE, depending on costing. Um, uh, it, it, it's a select few of patients who meet the indications um, before sort of allowing access to crizolizumab. And again, our cost must be a factor to this. And although we do, we do know that... Um, 
Crisolizumab works well. We still don't have any sort of long-term data, but if you think about it, Crisolizumab is about £16,500. Um, and I think NICE managed to get it on the NHS for maybe a thousand, uh, ten thousand pounds. Um, Is that per co- dose? Or yes, what, what? yes, oh. per dose. Yeah, and and if you think about the cost of oxalotol, oxalotol costs about eight thousand um, pounds, and hydroxyurea costs about a hundred pounds. So, um, it, it, there's a big sort of difference in time in terms of how expensive the drug drug is. Oh. But I think still we we should still have the opportunity to be able to lobby for these type of new treatments to be extended but i think what nice nice is a very sort of takes a different hat in terms of new treatments um when when new treatments come through they they uh, like to see the cost effectiveness and i guess this uh, few years whilst they're giving it to a select few patients they'll be able to determine the cost effectiveness uh, of crizolizumab in the sickle patients so you know you mentioned uh, so I, the irony, well, it is irony affected. Of- there's a there's a reduced. So I think in the study, for sustained study, the pain crisis was reduced by forty five percent. So um, we expect we are using it as an infusion. They come and get it every sort of zero to two weeks and four weeks, um, and uh, have reduction in pain crisis. It can be used with or without hydroxycarbamide. Anyone in aged above 16 that hasn't sort of responded to therapy and as long as they're not on blood transfusions as well. So, you know, I, the irony, the irony of, you know, hydroxyurea, what we've been yeah. all, otherwise known as hydroxycarbamide being yeah. hundred pounds a month, then you've got yeah. this new drug that's like 10,000 pounds per dose. Right? Yeah. So we've got Africa. Uh, well, you know, sickle cell isn't just confined to Africa. We've got uh, Arab world um, regions in, in, you know, in Asia that that uh, are prone to sickle cell. But okay, so let's let's think about our context of, of Ghanaian and Nigerian heritage, right? So it's costing ten thousand pounds for this new drug. What hope, or how do we even begin to strategize hope to find medicine, right, for all the people with sickle cell who need it the most, right? So all the yeah. people on the continent. Who, who need it the most? And how yeah. does that apply to you, especially Norris, in the context of your research that you're doing now, gene-based yeah. research? I mean, how, if Chris and Luzumab cost 10,000 per dose, yeah, yeah. the new stuff that's being worked on, how much would that cost, you know? Yeah, it, it, it is a problem. It, it, I'm not going to to, to lie. It is, it is a problem. And, and health inequality has been a big thing that's been flagged up this past few years. And I think... Um, the fact that we're sort of becoming more aware of these disparities and um, not that they're easy to find solutions, but at least we can sort of identify strategies to, to try and overcome. And I, I've had thoughts. So, for example, let's leave crizolizumab and voxilata aside because they're new treatments, but let's just say hydroxycarbamide that's been there for many years since the mid-90s. We got good data from hydroxycarbamide and... N- Recently, there have been more sort of papers showing that uh, hydroxycarbamide can be cost effective in the African setting. And so I think where we're seeing, it was very good to see that there were partnerships like Novartis and, and Ghan, the, in the Ghanaian setting to sort of distribute this drug. And, and, and I'm sad to hear that, that is no longer the case. But um, it, it is an example of the kind of collaboration that is needed for in order to sort of um, solve this type of disparities, uh, you've got to have these multi-stakeholders ranging from pharma, 
hospitals in both advanced countries and, and with collaborations in, in healthcare systems that are not so advanced, collaborating together to sort of make the access wider. Um, and so that's things, the things, even things like gene editing, for example, as well, you have the Gates Foundation collaborating as well with uh, stakeholders in the African setting, trying to increase the access because that's even going to be the biggest one really in a sense that's a cost of one million pounds for gene editing for one patient wow. with sickle cell so yeah it's going to be huge collaboration that's needed for the future and you know at that point i mean we're all scientists or doctors by background right we know it costs money to to find these drugs right mm. so you know it uh, uh, many of these pharmaceutical companies invest a lot of money to mm. to find these drugs to begin with but Either of you aware of perhaps work being done on, you know, on the continent by scientists on the continent to find local solutions? I mean, I'm aware of, you know, some trials being done on uh, certain locally developed drugs. What What are your thoughts on that? Um, have you read any of the papers? Are you aware of perhaps any successes there? Because that might end up being a bit more sustainable in terms of cost um, and access. Last year, there was this article of some work being done in Nigeria um, using herbal medications and sincerely I've had patients um, share experiences of using herbal medications to treat sickle cell disease and how it reduced the frequency of their pain crisis and the rest and since we are all of African heritage we can attest to the fact that um, some of these herbal medications actually do work and they are actually the source of a lot of the drugs that we have out there but then they are more refined. A lot of research, clinical trials, and the rest have been done. That's the only difference with the herbal medications that we have in Ghana, Nigeria, and other parts of Africa and in the developed world. They take the ingredients in the plants or whatever, and then it's refined. Research is done on animals, and then we move it to human subjects, run clinical trials, and then it can go out on the market but we don't have those steps we don't have those steps being done in Ghana and other parts of Nigeria so it's very hard to say that yes this herbal medication works because it may work for patient A and not work for patient B and patient B may have very severe consequences that may even lead to death so because we don't have the regulatory bodies we have research bodies and all in Ghana Nigeria and the rest but then I don't see the research being done, it moving to clinical trial stage and all for herbal medications. So it's hard to even prescribe it as a doctor in the hospital to any patient who wants alternative medicine or any patient who wants um, some relief other, other than what it's already known, hydroxyurea or the rest. And I think it's high time we start looking at these avenues and conducting research. But it calls for partnerships, it calls for investments. The government has to make sickle cell a priority. And I think one of the reasons why sickle cell is not a priority in Ghana and other African countries is because I think our governments have not seen it as a public health threat enough. That's one thing. And then the other thing that I personally think is that Sickle cell affects, we know the majority are Blacks. And so when I look at other conditions that affect um, non-Blacks, when you look at the interest, the investments and all, it's way higher as compared to sickle cell disease. So 
if anyone has to do something, it's us. Because it's affecting us. It's killing our people. It's destroying lives, destroying families. Children are uh, impacted at a very young age. I had a patient tell me this morning how she's actually on admission. And she says her daughter sometimes cries when she's in pain and she's admitted at the hospital. And then her daughter tells her, mommy, please be strong for me. I don't think a child should go through this emotional trauma, having the fear of losing your parents. And her mom is a single parent. Having the fear of losing your mother and you're not with your dad, what happens if your mom dies? And sickle cell affects not just the individual, their family, their friends. But we are not seeing the needed change, development, research which is needed. We are not seeing those things done. In terms of action, I agree with you, Mary. We do need action. If um app costs ten thousand pounds per dose and you need at least one dose every month, I mean, we do need to find alternatives. So Norris, tell us a bit about, you know, your insight as to what might be going on on the continent yeah. by scientists on the continent to find local solutions that are perhaps yeah. Yeah. more sustainable. I mean... Thank you, Yemisi. And Mary is exactly right with her comments as well. Um, but just to put it into context, there are 6 million babies born with you know, sickle cell Af in Africa uh, every year. Um, and there are no 6 million people living with sickle cell disease in Africa and uh, 275,000 babies born with, with sickle cell disease every year in Africa. So 80% of the world's disease burden is in Africa itself. So the continent of Africa is important to, to in terms of managing sickle cell as a, as a whole. I know that there are excellent centers um, such as Prof. Makani's Tanzanian Center for Sickle Cell Disease leading the way in Africa from a clinical point and a research point of view. But, but uh, other places um, may have, uh, in terms of infrastructure, few and far between. Um, so it's important, and that, that's key in terms of if you're trying to provide sickle cell services, the infrastructure is so critical in doing that. Um, so if you look at the data um, in terms of when patients with sickle cell disease are living longer, it's not just preventing infection, it's not just, it's not just um, sort of giving them hydroxyurea, but also they need to have some form of clinic setting to monitor this and uh, they need sort of blood uh, monitoring of hydroxycarbamide and all the other therapies that they need to be on. So in, in terms of sickle cell in the African setting, there just tends to be a lack of manpower and infrastructure to support this because in the, in the UK setting, the multidisciplinary team is one of the key factors that have promoted longevity for patients with sickle cell disease. And one of the things I say to the patients is here is that make sure you attend your hematology clinics because it's so important because from there you're plugged into all other things and can get the help you need. And so in the African setting, that's more difficult to have. And Mary's right. If it was a, like they were able to, for example, in COVID definitely is an example, but even the HIV uh, cases, uh, maybe 20, 30 years back, uh, they were able to mobilize health services and manpower, educate people more quickly. But uh, I think something similar will need to take place in Africa for sickle cell to get that same momentum. So, you know, before before we wrap up, um, what do you see, and, and to Mary, what do you see as, as the way forward? You know, we know that there are treatments that are 
very good at reducing crises, reducing uh, pain crises. What what would you like to see happen in, in this context? I think research, like I've been saying, is key and very critical. I, I feel like it's the first thing that's needed. And then the second is partnerships. And for the partnerships to happen, a lot of awareness and advocacy is needed to raise awareness for them to see the need to partner with African organizations, research organizations, healthcare facilities. And then partnerships is supposed to result in um, we having like some pharmaceutical companies producing the medications locally. Because if the medications are produced locally and they are not imported, it takes away lots of costs. So that's another key area. And then we literally have to start thinking of curative measures which are cheap, very affordable, very accessible, very safe. And I love the creative measures like what Norris is working on, the gene editing, CRISPR-Cas9, base editing, and the rest. They are all awesome, but I don't think they are going to be accessible. Maybe I'll, I'll be proven wrong, and I pray I'll be proven wrong, but I'm not sure how they are going to be accessible in to, it's going to be accessible to the woman, the farmer in the village somewhere in Ghana or in Nigeria. So that's, that's the main thing. How do we reduce the burden of sickle cell disease and make it accessible? So we have to look at curative measures which are going to be accessible even in rural communities. Mm. I think these are some of the things that we can do. But awareness creation and advocacy is very important to draw people's attention, the stakeholders, the governments, to draw their attention. So, and some, they just do not know because they are not affected. They would only know when they are affected. So we, we have to make much noise, more noise, and draw their attention to how it's impacting lives and, importantly, how it's impacting the economy and how the economy would grow if those mm. factors and issues are dealt with. Yeah, yeah, that tends to be the vocabulary of policymakers, right? How is it going to affect the money, right? You know, how will it affect the economy? I think that's um, often a good uh, foundation to base state statements on because it's speaking in their in their language. And you make a very important point. You say, how accessible is gene therapy going to be? One could imagine over time, it may get cheaper, but I mean, how long will it take? So, so Norris, you're you know, we're sort of picking on you <laughs> in a sense. You're working on all this fancy new new stuff, right? But you're also of Nigerian heritage. Tell us a bit about how we could make any of this accessible and what's the what's Yeah, the yeah, no, I, to I totally agree. I think, um, yeah, gene editing w w is largely inaccessible for the African continent um, unless significant changes are done and uh, significant collaborations are done and, and that's the reason why one of the world's biggest funders like Gates was found it interesting to try and um, change the narrative on that uh, through collaborating with uh, pharma companies and stakeholders in, in Africa to try and change that narrative whether or not it will reach its actionable goals it, it, it remains to be seen um, but the way I see gene therapy, the technology itself is a bit like when iPhone came out first and and it's like, and then you start to get an iPhone 2, iPhone 3 and stuff like that. So the technology will continue to 
developing itself and more cheaper forms of the technology will, will continue to, to, to take form. At the moment, we, we do gene therapy through transplantation routes, but I'm telling you people across the world are working on ways that they can get it into a tablet form. So um, that will be the next sort of holy grail. So what's that in, then, then there, there's still more scope for the, the, the price to, to, to drop. But um, there are also the more effective ways. I don't know, um, maybe if I ask Mary how locally things like education of at-risk couples um, uh, is effective because um, in, in the Middle East, they seem to get sort of good rates of reducing levels of sickle down by just by educating the at-risk. Sometimes they don't, in some countries, they don't even let the at-risk couples marry, which is can be controversial. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, so so how's the education point of view locally there in, in, in Ghana, for example? Um, so, so far, um, at the International Sickle Cell Centre, we have screened over 700 people for their sickle cell genotype. And we've done this in the past one year. And for everyone that we screen, we provide genetic counselling. So far, the couples that we have screened, for one reason or the other, they have all separated. At the International Sickle Cell Center, we do not tell people what to do. We only tell them about sickle cell disease, explain everything to them, the complications of the condition, how some people have severe symptoms and others have less severe symptoms or do not even know they have sickle cell disease until they are pregnant. And they go to the hospital and they are told, oh, you have sickle cell disease. So the symptoms vary for everyone. So whilst it's a big deal for some, for others, it's not a big deal. And we tell them about the various reproductive options, the cost involvement, the ethical issues, the religious issues. And then you have to assess yourself, your family situation. Will both families agree? Sometimes one family will agree, the other family will not agree. And so after we tell them the various options, they asked us questions and all, then they would have to go back, assess their current situation. Is it doable? But what we advise every, every couple is that they need to try and reduce the chances of giving birth to a child with sickle cell disease. Just because you do not know if your child is going to inherit the severe symptoms or not. And seeing your child go through pain and you spending so much money and sometimes people have to lose their jobs and it can wreck marriages and all that. The, the burden of sickle cell is great and I don't think anyone will want their children to go through that. Yeah. And you know you're you're doing a you're doing a great job, um, Mary, because Thank you. you know everything you've just highlighted shows that there's there's knowledge gaps, there's gaps mm. in terms of mm. insight on on how on how sickle cell happens, right? Mm. Um, so you know I, I think you know you're doing a great job with the International Sickle Cell Center, and you know thanks for for launching that. Um, we do have an episode in the series called sickle cell and love so we do co cover that but ah. it is an issue it is an yes. issue for a it's lot a of people issue, isn't it? Yeah. it is a very very big issue so thanks very much for um to both of you guys for joining us i suppose the take home i've gotten from that is you know we need more research more collaboration but also more local solutions and the only way we can get that is by investment investment in research 
to try and find um, local solutions in terms of new drugs. So thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, MEC and Mary. It's been an honour and pleasure speaking with you guys today. I'd love for us to continue the conversation. Join me on Rare Disease Day this February 28th, 2023 for an online discussion and Q&A with some of the amazing guests we've featured on the series. Details can be found in the description. Alternatively, visit our website at sicklecellunboxed.com to register to attend. I look forward to seeing you there. I'm your host, Dr. Yemisi Bokini, and this is Sickle Cell Unboxed. Sickle Cell Unboxed is powered by the Genetic Society.